Welcome to the Pilot Protection Services Podcast, where AOPA's legal and medical certification staff, along with leading industry voices, take on the challenges and developments that all pilots deal with. From staying out of trouble with the FAA, to becoming a better pilot, to staying healthy so you can stay in the left seat longer. Welcome everyone to our AOPA Pilot Protection Services Podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Sakia. I author the Flywell columns in AOPA Pilot Magazine and contribute to our online offerings such as today's podcast. And as I often am, I'm today joined by my good friend Gary Crump, who's Director of Medical Certification at AOPA. Hey, today, Jonathan. It's good to be with you. Absolutely. Great to have you, Gary. And today we're going to be discussing all things cardiac for pilots, the heart. You know, a healthy piston engine has a rhythm that ensures smooth flight. And today we're going to discuss the heartbeat of the aviator. The cardiovascular system basically consists of the heart, that's the cardiac part, and the vascular is the blood vessels that come out of the heart and take blood, first of all, to the lungs to pick up oxygen. Then the blood comes back to the heart and it gets pumped all around the body, including, first of all, to the heart itself to supply the heart muscle with with nutrients and with oxygen, it goes all over the body and then the blood comes back into the heart and the cycle goes again. And the average is, you know, 72 beats a minute, every minute for every minute that you're alive. And there's different elements to the cardiovascular system that when they go wrong, lead to disease and disorder. So Gary, first of all, can you tell us what are some of the the common issues that create problems for pilots? And I think I'm correct in saying that Cardiovascular disease is probably one of the biggest reasons uh, why people are calling you, right? Yeah, yeah, it really is. And, uh, and hypertension actually is, you know, people think of high blood pressure and don't necessarily always relate that to cardiovascular disease or the cardiovascular system. But we still get lots and lots of calls about hypertension. In fact, that's the that's the really low fruit for us because, you know, that's just so simple. That's one of the most basic certification issues that uh, aviation medical examiners see. And people uh, still call us totally freaking out because their doctor wants to put them on blood pressure medicine and they, they're afraid they're going to lose their medicals. But the FAA policy on hypertension has been in effect since even way back in the 1970s. But back then, it was ridiculous what they required. I mean, you had there were only a very small number of blood pressure medicines that the FAA would allow back then, and then you had to have a full cardiovascular evaluation, and hypertension was just treated totally differently back then, but we've made a lot of strides in the last 40 years or so. So pretty much all of the available blood pressure medicines, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, direct vasodilators, those are all allowed medications, and it's an office issuance. So the FAA just likes to see a quick note from the treating doctor saying what blood pressure medicines you're on, the dosages and frequency of use, and give us a blood pressure reading just showing that you meet the policy limit. The FAA sets policy for hypertension at a maximum of 155 over 95, and that's a really pretty high policy limit. Most physicians are not going to let their patients uh, be anywhere close to that without being treated. So as long as they're well controlled on one of the allowed medications, that's an office issuance. And we still, you know, like I say, we get lots and lots of calls about it, but it's a, it's an easy fix. People uh, that are borderline, we just say, look, just don't worry about it. Get on medication. It's better to be on the medication in most cases than, than, than not. 
and uh, continue to watch your blood pressure creep up. So get it under control, and it's an office issuance for all three classes of medicals. Uh, and by the way, we must mention again and again and again, lose weight, exercise, and you know sometimes that will actually treat the hypertension. And you also made a, a point about that people don't associate hypertension, high blood pressure, as being a problem with the cardiovascular system. As, as you well know, Gary, that if your blood pressure is high, the arteries in your body, basically the walls become thickened and blood flow becomes disturbed and uh, it predisposes you to deposits of what's called atheroma, which looks like porridge inside the blood vessels. So, and, and those changes have sometimes been going on for years before the hypertension is, uh, actually declares itself. So prevention is better than cure. Keep your weight under control and exercise. So hypertension, that's a biggie. And recommendation, get your blood pressure checked a couple of times a year, um, you know, maybe more often as you get older. What are some of the other issues other than hypertension? Obviously, uh, myocardial infarction, heart attacks, and coronary artery disease all kind of sort of in the same area that you were just talking about, vessel disease, still see a lot of, a lot of cardiovascular disease. The FAA requires uh, not significantly strenuous evaluations, but they do require a basic treadmill test. And it's not just a treadmill test that most cardiologists would do in their office for their normal non-pilot patients. They, the FAA wants to see a maximum treadmill which means they want to see someone be able to complete a full nine-minute protocol on the treadmill. It's called the Bruce Protocol. So it's, you know, they call it a stress test for a reason. It's intended to, to stress your heart and uh, measure your exercise capacity and, and your exercise endurance. So they're looking for specific abnormalities on your stress EKG. They're watching your blood pressure to make sure it doesn't go excessively high when, when you're under stress. But um, heart, uh, heart disease, we still deal with quite a bit. Fortunately, most people now with heart disease are able to be treated either medically with uh, medications and conservatively, or if they require some type of intervention, that's done with coronary artery stent placement. And occasionally, we still see people with uh, severe widespread heart disease that does require open bypass surgery. But uh, the FAA has been certifying pilots for decades with uh, coronary artery disease. So we still see a lot of those. Uh, we see a lot of atrial fibrillation, which is a, a form of heart arrhythmia. Uh, atrial fib is pretty commonplace in aging population. Before we get on to that, let's just go back to uh, coronary artery disease and, okay. and how it manifests itself. So we're basically talking about the, the blood vessels that supply oxygen and nutrients to the heart muscle. They're the first branches that come off of the, the freshest blood, if you will, that's being pumped out the heart, goes to the heart muscle. And if you get the deposits of this atheroma, this porridgey stuff, inside these vessels, it limits flow to the muscle. Now, the first symptom that can be caused is no symptoms at all until you just keel over, right? That's um, right. A sudden death with absolutely no uh, pre-existing symptoms is uh, a tragic thing that often happens. And if you've got a family history or you've got high blood pressure or you've got high blood lipids or you're a smoker or you're overweight, you need to have your coronary arteries checked because the first symptom you may have is six feet of unwanted real estate, right? Correct. Correct. The second symptom that people commonly have, Gary Wright, is angina. 
chest pain, angina pectoris, pain in the chest, a gripping pain, sometimes radiating up into the, the jaw or down the arm, the left arm, uh, sometimes associated with nausea or vomiting or sweating, uh, just as a heart attack, actually, and it can feel like a heart attack. How does FAA respond to um, a pilot who's got angina that can be controlled by the little tablets under the tongue, which is actually called glycerol trinitrate. It's basically high explosives, nitroglycerin. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. How does FAA re <laughs> react to that? Well, the FAA, number one, does not allow the use of nitrates. They don't want people relying on medications to artificially dilate the coronary arteries to improve the blood flow. It's a good immediate first response, either that or an aspirin. If you don't have a pre-existing history, you wouldn't necessarily have a prescription for a, a isosorbide or any of the nitrate medications unless you had a pre-existing history. So, but the FA doesn't let you fly on those. That's one of the relatively few cardiac medications that the FA doesn't allow. Now, a lot of pilots or a lot of people that have a history of MI or have an angina, never have had an MI yet, will carry a bottle of nitroglycerin with them just in case. The FAA is okay with that. They just don't want you using it on a regular basis once they've, they've certified you. But uh, once that history is established uh, under the old regulations and, and still for first class and second class, there are mandatory wait times of at least three months after a heart attack or a stent placement or coronary bypass. But under the new regulations, the, the basic med regulation, that did away with the required wait period for, for third class. And without getting off on a tangent on basic med, uh, if you've had an event and you're flying under basic med or you want to fly under basic med, you have to go back to the FAA and qualify for a special issuance one time. But uh, there is no required wait period of three months or six months if you have bypass under the, the basic med rules. So if you're looking for a third class, which is all you need, you can go in a month after your heart attack if your doctor's comfortable putting you on the treadmill. And then uh, one of the things that you mentioned that the FA looks closely at are your risk factors. They look at uh, your gender. They look at your age. They look at your family history. They look at your smoking history and alcohol history to a certain extent and your lipids. So they want to make sure that you got all those risk factors under control to minimize or mitigate the likelihood of a, another cardiac event. But once they see a good, clean, normal treadmill test, good blood pressure, appropriate medication usage, and good follow-up medical management, they do a lot of special uh, issuances, thousands of special issuances for coronary artery disease, including angina, MI, and uh, coronary interventions, either stents or bypass surgery. So I guess, again, it makes the point. If someone's got a family history or they think they're at risk of coronary artery disease, it is much better to get it sorted, get it treated. Let's say you, let's say you haven't had a heart attack, but you get a stem put in and you get onto the appropriate medications to control the condition so that you don't have a heart attack. Yeah, you're still going to have issues with waiting times and so on and so forth. But what part of you didn't have a heart attack? the people not understand. So getting screened is a really, really important component of it. That's a good point, actually, Jonathan, because we're, and I just now, this just now occurred to me as you were saying that, but we're seeing more and more pilots who have not had a cardiac event. That, that is, they didn't have an MI. They either became symptomatic with a little chest pain or a progressive shortness of breath. These are all kind of subtle symptoms leading up, you know, that's kind of your first indications of something potentially going wrong. 
And then they have the appropriate evaluations done. They end up in the cath lab having a cardiac catheterization. And voila, we find coronary disease and we place a stent. And um, these people never really have any cardiac insult. They don't have an MI, which means they, their troponins, their blood uh, cardiac enzymes were not elevated. And so they really dodged the bullet, so to speak, because they picked it up preemptively and uh, got treated for coronary disease before they actually had a cardiac event. Right. So you mentioned atrial fibrillation, which is the probably the most common disorder of heart rhythm. And basically, the heart has an electrical pacemaker that sends electrical waves that stimulate the muscle to start pumping in an organized manner. And uh, there are these, uh, the atria, the two chambers at the top of the heart, and the ventricles, the two big chambers at the bottom. And it all has to work in a nice, coordinated fashion. Something happens to the electrical conduction. That orderly progression um, kind of goes pear-shaped. Um, and the most common disordered function is called atrial fibrillation. So you get calls about that, Gary. And um, you want to talk a little bit about the, um, the, the process of evaluating these, uh, these pilots and treating them and what the aeromedical issues are um, as, as a result of it. Oh, yeah. We deal with atrial fibrillation probably every single day. I think probably not a day goes by that one of, at least one of our medical certification specialists in the Pilot Information Center talks with somebody about atrial fibrillation. And, uh, you know, it's really it's pretty easy to diagnose. A lot of times you can put your finger on your wrist and feel your pulse. And if you feel it's not a steady rhythmic pulse, but it's bouncing all over the place, that's a pretty good indication that you may be uh, in atrial fibrillation. It's not a a malignant arrhythmia per se, as long as it gets treated. Uh, if it's untreated, because of the uh, aberrant conduction pathway that results in this, the, the atria doesn't contract rhythmically, and as a result, the blood can pool in the, in the atria and then end up getting out in your bloodstream and end up in places where you really don't want it to be. So the risk for stroke is really the biggest concern for untreated atrial fibrillation. So once a patient is adequately controlled and put on anticoagulants, there's actually a, it's called the, the CHADS-2, can't remember the protocol with all the acronyms, but you're assigned points for your different risk factors associated with atrial fibrillation. So for most people that have atrial fib later in life, they're going to be put on something a little more potent than a, an aspirin to protect against a blood clot or a thrombus forming in the atrial. Those are called anticoagulants. There are three or four of them that are available on the market in addition to Coumadin, which is a totally different type of uh, anticoagulant. But uh, people rat are put on that. Basically rat poison. Coumadin was uh, developed at the, at the University of Wisconsin, and it was originally called warfarin. Uh, right. which stands for the Wisconsin Alumni Research uh, Foundation. I believe. Yes, WARF, and then the RN refers to coumarin, which is the clover grass that it comes from. So, yeah, right. that, that's the – and it's basically rat poison. That's why in America they like to call it coumarin because people don't want to be taking rat poison. And that's I'm blanking exactly on right. the name of the medication as well. Um, I'll, I'll, one of us and, will come up with it. I deal with them all the time, yeah. yeah. Pradaxa is one of them. Xarelto is the other one that's fairly yeah, Zarelto, fairly, yeah. fairly common as well. Yeah. Unfortunately, they're pretty expensive medications, but they do a good job of uh, protecting you against uh, stroke. So AFib uh, requires, obviously, uh, it's initial application for a medical, the FAA likes to see a good history from the cardiologist. They also require a baseline treadmill stress test. And that, that's kind of the go-to thing for anything cardiovascular. The FAA always wants to see a baseline treadmill stress test, a 24-hour Holter monitor, 
That's a 24-hour ambulatory heart monitor that uh, they, they fit you up with a, some leads on your chest and give you a little computer that you wear on your belt for 24 hours and it records your rate and rhythm. And then you take it back and they download it and then print out a, a big sophisticated report showing what your heart did during that monitoring period. So that's where a lot of times the atrial fibrillation gets picked up. Some people are in it chronically. Some people are in it intermittently. It's called paroxysmal AFib where you kind of bounce in and out of AFib. But it's really pretty much all treated the same. I mean, if you're you're in paroxysmal AFib, your doctor probably is going to go ahead and treat you with uh, anticoagulants, and just it's just uh, easier to manage you on a regular basis than let you bounce back and forth. And then the, the the third thing the FA likes to see is a just a resting echocardiogram, and then uh, submit all that. It gets you a special issuance, and then in most cases, if it's well controlled. A lot of times the FAA will do a, what's called an AME-assisted special issuance that will allow the medical examiner to reissue an annual certificate in the office, and then all the records have to be shipped off to the FAA. But the first time around, it, uh, the FAA wants to see those uh, evaluations in the office in Oklahoma City, and then they'll do the initial special issuance. So once you're in the, in the mill and uh, get that initial certification, the rest of it for continued certification is really relatively easy as long as you continue to uh, show good control. That's the other thing they look for is good rate control. So they like to see your, your average resting rate somewhere about 100, no more than about 120 beats per minute, which is really pretty fast. But uh, anything higher than that, the FA gets a little nervous that there may be something else going on rhythmically in, uh, in the conduction system. So they do have that, uh, that limitation for good rate control. But other than that, it's a pretty straightforward process to maintain a certificate with AFib. Yeah, absolutely. So as we near the end of this podcast, uh, Gary, um, I'd like you to make a few comments about implantable defibrillators. These are devices that stop the heart going into a fatal rhythm called ventricular fibrillation. And, and pacemakers, what the, the current thinking is about these is getting better and better. But uh... It is. It is. However, um, I was just at a, a meeting uh, about a month ago out in Las Vegas, and uh, the one of the FAA cardiology consultants, again, emphasized that the FAA is not yet comfortable with allowing individuals that have an implantable defibrillator. So, unfortunately, People that are in congestive heart failure or have a condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, or they've had, in some cases, they've had a heart attack and they've got compromised left ventricular function, the pump side of the heart is not pumping as effectively as it should, will get an implantable defibrillator. And sometimes some of the units are components with a pacemaker. So you get a pacemaker and a defibrillator. And in fact, I think that's one of the marketing tools right now that the manufacturers are really pushing now. So some pilots really only need a pacemaker, which is for a totally different set of issues, uh, rhythm issues, but they'll also include the, the implantable defibrillator as a component, kind of a dual component with the pacemaker. And unfortunately, that's not going to fly with the FAA. So the FAA's requirement is Number one, they want to know why they've got the defibrillator in the first place. But in order for a pilot to be eligible or to be considered, that defibrillator would either have to be removed, term is called explanted versus implanted, or it would be have to be completely turned off, and then the FAA would want to know why it was put in in the first place. So unfortunately, defibrillators are probably not going to be on the stage in certification for quite a while, as opposed to a regular pacemaker. One additional comment, sometimes people get 
atrial fibrillation and ventricular fibrillation confused. And that's two totally different things. And Jonathan, you might want to comment on it, but VFib is bad. AFib is not quite so bad. AFib is easy to fix. VFib is, uh, is not so easy to fix. Yeah, absolutely. I think all those comments are, are on point. And, you know, as we move to close, as I've said before on these podcasts and, you know, in columns and such like, uh, I'm a music buff. My guitar teacher, when I was uh, growing up, told me it'd be a service to humanity if I stopped playing. But I love <laughs> listening. And I'm, I'm moved to remember a song that Rod Stewart recorded in 1991 called Rhythm of My Heart. And in it says, oh, rhythm of my heart is beating like a drum. And, you know, another rocker, Huey Lewis, sang that the heart of rock and roll is still beating. So I recommend people should enjoy Rod and Huey and also listen metaphorically uh, to keep uh, the rhythm session inside your chest beating in rhythm. Stay well, prevent yourself from having heart disease. But if you have problems, deal with it and deal with it properly and diligently so that you can keep flying well and living well. And with that, um, I'll say bye for now. And Gary? Bye for now. Good talking with you. All the best. Bye for now, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Pilot Protection Services podcast. We'll be back soon with more of your favorite topics and guests in general aviation. Pilot Protection Services is available only to AOPA members, and over 64,000 of those members choose to protect their certificates with PPS. It's a service we're proud to provide. Fly safe, and we'll see you soon.